Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we begin Volume 3 of our Ephesians series, Empowered Living, with a series entitled, God's Glorious Resources for Living. So turning your Bibles to Ephesians 5, verse 1 to 2, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I am reading Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, and it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5 begins with the word that invites us to look back. It's the word therefore. It means on the basis of what has just been said and taught, this is what you're to do. And so before we look at what we're to do, we should remember what we've been taught that leads us to this moment. I've been ever so slowly taking us through the book of Ephesians. I've called this series Empowered Living. See, Ephesians is a remarkable book. If you ever feel sorry for yourself or you're given to feelings of self-pity, thinking that you're so much more impoverished than others and that life has given you a very raw deal, a necessary prescription for you is that you read and study the book of Ephesians. There you'll discover that, that is, if you've truly confessed your sins and trusted Christ alone for your salvation, at that moment, you'll discover from Ephesians that you're rich beyond your wildest dreams. In Christ, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Now, when you hear me speaking this way, I don't want to belittle the genuine pain and struggles that so many people, including Christians, do undergo because we live in a sin-cursed creation. Sometimes people do endure while walking through the the valley of the shadow of death. And yes, that is the nature of our experience. And furthermore, it's also true that some people are oppressed in such a way that others really are doing much better than they are. But Ephesians invites us to radically change our perspective on what is of ultimate value. Earthly blessings are transitory and of no eternal worth. Nothing is as tragic as an obscenely wealthy man who's devoid of spiritual riches. And nothing is so wonderful as a man named Moses who chose to be mistreated along with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses considered disgrace that came along with the hope of the Messiah to be of greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And so Paul has been articulating what spiritual blessings look like chosen in Christ from before the foundations of the world, predestined unto adoption as sons and daughters of God, redemption through the blood of Christ, forgiveness of all our trespasses, lavished upon us was the wisdom inside of God, sealed by the Holy Spirit, experiencing a deliverance from bondage that makes what Moses experienced in the Exodus seem like small potatoes. And of course, Ephesians contains a wonderful list of what God has accomplished for all of his children. See, all we need to do is open our eyes and see, not what is available to us, but what we already possess. Now, from chapter 4 and on, Paul moves from describing our resources to coming to application. It works as follows. Imagine you were obscenely rich, but were living in poverty, on the street, bad clothing, no health care, not getting enough to eat seems impossible to imagine that. That is to say, there is a lifestyle befitting of your riches. In the same way, there's a lifestyle that goes along with the one who is obscenely spiritually rich. 
And that's what we find in Ephesians 4 to 6. Now let's get back to that first word that we found in chapter 5. And remember, it was the word therefore. See, in this sense, the word therefore was probably not in reference to the entire book. It relates to what was said in chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. The Christian lifestyle is a lifestyle, according to verse 17, is remarkably different from what is found in the wider culture. It rejects sensuality in favor of loving care for others. It rejects greed and replaces it with generosity. It rejects falsehood with a commitment to always speaking the truth. It rejects corrupting talk in favor of speech meant to glorify God and look out for others. It rejects bitterness with forgiveness and reconciliation. And with all that, we come to the word therefore. On the basis of this new lifestyle, is there a way in which we can summarize it? See, think of it this way. All of us have heard of numerous Christian commands. There are things that make up the Christian way of life. Now then, is there a way to summarize that? Can we make the summary in such a way that's memorable? We need a way to state things so that without looking up a long list, it's easy for us to remember what is said and to live like a man or a woman who's obscenely spiritually wealthy. And that's what we find in chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, in order to know where all of this leads, all you need to do is remember two things. First, imitate God. Second, walk in love. You know, I can't think of two commands that better characterize the lifestyle of a Christian. And so today, let's dig deeply into those two conclusions to all that we do. First, look again at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And that's it. But that's a mouthful. What can it mean to imitate God? And notice we're to do it as beloved children. You know, behind this teaching is a reminder of what Paul has taught us earlier, and he spoke to us about our wealth. Chapter 1, verse 5 taught us that God the Father predestined us to be adopted to himself as sons, and we would add as daughters as well, in Christ Jesus. That is, some of what Jesus accomplished was a fulfillment of what the Father had eternally planned for his children. All right, since we're the children of God, we're adopted into his family, we are to imitate our Father. That's great language. Have you ever watched little children with their parents? Now, here's an enduring memory that I have. I think I'll take it to my grave. When my son Jonathan was perhaps three or four, he would stand with me at the back of the church after I had finished preaching, and he'd shake people's hands and thank them for coming. It was, it was his delight to imitate his dad, and his dad was bursting with pride because of him. See, that's what kids do. They imitate their parents. It's natural. When boys watch their dads, they learn what it means to be a man. And when girls watch their moms, they learn what it means to be a woman. They are being imprinted with it. But here's the problem. We are to imitate the father. And we aren't making preparations to be God. He's going to be always God. We're always going to be human. He's spirit, we're flesh. He's omnipresent, we're always at all times physically limited to being in one place at one time. He's all wise and all knowing. We're always going to live with the limitations of a finite amount of knowledge and wisdom. There is, as we all know, an infinite distance between us and God. See, as Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 reminds us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's an infinite distance between us and God. And since this is most assuredly true, how are we to imitate God? Now, we might draw a blank here and say, well, I can't imagine what that can mean. So how do I do that? Let's see if I can answer that. Let's start by noticing that Paul, in his letters, often uses the language of imitation. As an example, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 has Paul saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, now Paul will tell the Corinthian believers that he fathered them. And he means, look, I preached the gospel to you, and it was through me that you came to believe. You know, in this way, I became your spiritual father. And since, you know, Paul not only won them to Christ, but also formed them into a church, and he continued to monitor their progress, Paul said, watch me. And if you understand the Christian lifestyle, pay attention to me. How do I respond to my enemies? How do I conduct myself in prayer? What are my attitudes towards various matters? What's my speech like? Now, says Paul, lest you think I'm drawing attention to myself. Well, let me tell you, I learned from Jesus himself. I mean, after all, Paul's an apostle. He was personally mentored by Jesus. Christ had not only taught Paul the gospel, he taught him how to live. Now then, Jesus. Throughout his earthly ministry, listen to what Jesus said. John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. See, in short, in his role as our Redeemer, Jesus imitated the Father. Now, from that, what do we learn? Yeah, Jesus, in his role as our Redeemer, submitted to the Father to the point of death. How does that relate to us? Well, listen again to Jesus, and here it's recorded in Matthew 5, 43 to 45. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. In short, watch how gracious God is to sinners and then you be just like him. The days we have are precious, and how we use our days matter. Dr. John helps us to consider how we spend our time in ways that matter for eternity in his series, The Time of Your Life. Why is time so important? Well, it's a scarce commodity. It's uncertain how many days we have. Time can never be recovered, and our use of time can introduce either light or darkness. Paul's exhortation to the church in Ephesus is so true for us today. We should be a church longing to live as those who are wise, making the very best use of our time. This is a high calling, but a worthy calling. This month, request Dr. Newfeld's series, The Time of Your Life, on CD as our free gift to you. And to support Bible teaching with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. Imitating God means that we imitate those qualities in God that we're capable of imitating. 
Let me take you back to the young boy imitating his dad. You know, the boy doesn't drive the car just because his dad does. See, in the same way, imitating God has nothing to do with imitating those attributes of God that are incommunicable or those attributes that we can't participate in. But we can participate in some attributes. Most notably, God is holy and he's untouched by sin. But unlike God, we are not incapable of sinning. Quite the opposite. We're full of sin. He's full of righteousness. And therefore, if you listen to some contemporary evangelicals, they take the passage that speaks of alien righteousness and imagine that we have an inherent righteousness. So what am I talking about? Well, I was listening to a teacher just the other day who said, I'm not a sinner. God says I'm righteous. Now that displays a shocking biblical error. What God actually says is that he applies the righteousness of Christ to us in our salvation. And when we say that, we're talking about an alien righteousness. It doesn't come from us. Well, I mean, the righteousness that I glory in is not mine. It's Christ's. Christ is sinless and holy. And in grace, God the Father has, in grace through faith, he has covenanted that I, on the final day, am going to be judged on Christ's righteousness and not on mine. Within me, however, there is an inherent condition that there is still a sin nature in me. And yet God in his mercy has given us the Holy Spirit, and he's made it possible to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. See, in that way, even though we're imperfect, and even though we sometimes still fail, and yet we imitate the holiness of God, how? By hating sin, by loving truth, by seeking to live in holiness and righteousness, in mercy and in compassion. That is to say, the lifestyle of the Christian believer is to look to the Father and to seek to know his nature and delight in what we find and be filled with joy that the highest thoughts that we can think are the thoughts of the nature and the attributes of God. And then out of delight, we seek to emulate all those things in God that are possible to emulate. We want it to be self-evident that we are the children of God. I say this is an essential piece in the Christian worldview. Let me illustrate. Years ago, during a public sermon, I was reveling in the mercy of God towards me, and I made this statement. I said I was constantly amazed that in mercy, God had looked upon me a sinner and one who's unworthy of grace, and yet he had saved me. Now, after I had preached that, I received a note from a parishioner, and she was concerned for me. She said, look, your congregation loves you, she said. You've been a success in your life. You've got to start believing in yourself. (laughs) See, unbeknownst to her, she was not an imitator of God. She was an imitator of the world. Her culture had taught her to believe in herself, but the scripture taught her to believe in God. And she hadn't known that a choice was lying before her. She simply imitated the highest values in her culture, and she placed on top of that a form of the Christian faith. There's something profound about the lifestyle of genuine Christianity. So the real thing, the thing that makes us children of God, also makes us into imitators of God. Like a young child who's not influenced by the culture nearly as much as he or she is influenced by parents, so also it is with us. God has to loom so large on our horizon that his shadow over us eclipses the shadow of our culture. Do you think I'm naive when I say that? Are you thinking, who can escape the lure of our culture? 
And of course, we can't escape the culture in which we live, but we can lessen its impact. And we do that by focusing our minds on God. That's the first prominent marker of the Christian lifestyle. Here's the second, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, it should be said that this second marker parallels the first one. God is love. God loved the world to the extent that he gave his one and only son. Everything about the nature and the work of God tells us that he's love. Something else catches my attention in Ephesians 5 verse 2. This is now the fifth time in which Paul has instructed believers in their walk. So let's start with chapter 2, 1 to 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Then chapter 2, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. Then to chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Then in chapter 4, 17, now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then after the use of the word walk in our text, we go to chapter 5, verse 15, where we're told to walk not as unwise, but as wise. Now, it's hard to miss all of those references to walking. It's about a Christian lifestyle. You see, in the ancient world, if you're going somewhere, you didn't hop in your car. Yeah, of course, there were other means of travel, but most people walked. You're going somewhere, you're going to walk, and along the way, you'd choose friends who would walk with you. And so in the Christian walk, in the Christian journey to our final destination, which is you know, our heavenly home, we should have traveling companions. And Paul says, you used to have sin as your traveling companion, along with examples set by the Gentiles who don't know God. But now you have new traveling companions that include good works and wisdom and love. Here's the difficulty. Love is such a vague term. See, almost no one in any culture would think, well, it would be a bad idea to have love as a traveling companion. Everyone would say, that's a great idea. But back in the 1970s, a group called Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young boldly sang a song. If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. And they meant if you can't have sex with either your spouse or the person you're in a relationship with, well, just have sex with someone who's available to you at the time. An interesting view of love. And indeed, the Greeks in Ephesus would have agreed with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Love was eros. Now, there are other definitions of love. One is love as an expression of need. In other words, if you don't love someone, you're going to stay alone. And so love is the showing of friendship and concern for another in order that you would not be robbed of the human touch and of the concern for others in your life. Incidentally, this is how some people think of the love of God. You know, there is a popular song that's sung in some churches. It's called, What a Beautiful Name It Is. Now, in many ways, it's a God-glorifying song, but one line says, you didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. And sometimes it alarms me with the ease at which we sing of a needy God who loves us so that he wouldn't be left alone without us. And by the way, pagan Greek culture in Ephesus also would have been comfortable with that expression of love. But in the authentic Christian faith, you know, there's a lifestyle the world has never heard about. Look at verse 2 again. 
What kind of love do we want? Well, Paul tells us that we walk in love as Christ has loved us. Again, we're reminded of imitation, but here it's not imitation of God the Father, it's imitation of God the Son. As Christ loved us. How did Christ love us? Well, Paul makes very plain what he has in mind. Christ loved us and he gave himself for us. That's what he has in mind. He thinks a hallmark of Christian lifestyle is that believers sacrifice for each other. We give ourselves to each other. We're willing to pay a price for the benefit of the other. We lay down our rights so that others might grow in Christ. And then, lest we misunderstand, Paul adds a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is, as you sacrificially love brother or sister, remember, it's a pleasing offering to God. It's done not so that the brother or sister might repay you or be in an obligation to you. It's done as a lifestyle presented up as an offering to God. It's a pleasing aroma, just like an Old Testament offering. God looks at it and he's pleased. And that, says Paul, is the Christian lifestyle summed up. Yeah, of course. We need to know how to make the Christian lifestyle work in countless ways, you know, from our speaking to our giving, to our commitment to truth-telling, to our commitment to walk in humility, to our willingness to forgive those who hurt us, to our rejection of patterns of unrighteousness that are found in the wider culture. But in truth, those individual commands can be summed up in these two. Be imitators of God the Father and be imitators of God the Son. Look, I think that Paul summarizes all the Christian commands in these two, lest we should simply think of the Christian lifestyle as a series of moral lessons. In the end, how we live is always our expression of the God we believe in. All of our obedience is an act of worship and of delight that we find in God and our willingness to imitate Him. Thanks, John. This will be a great series. Let me ask you this. Would it be wrong for me to say that God didn't want heaven without us? (laughs) Well, it would be wrong. Yes, it would be, because when we say things like that, Ben, what we're doing is we're creating an image of God who's needy so that, you know, God can't be fulfilled or satisfied without us. The reality is that infinite ages existed before we came into being and God was fully satisfied. There is never anything lacking in God. We need to say that because in this way, we recognize that our joy is in a God who is perfectly joyful. Thanks, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Empowered Living, Volume 3, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Momentum is picking up as friends from across the country sign up for the 2022 Israel Experience. Join us from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 with Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, very special musical guests, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, David walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, David's royal palace. Sail the Sea of Galilee and join in communion together at the Garden Tomb. Well, the full Israel itinerary is now available online and to ensure an intimate experience, numbers are limited. So register soon. 
For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.